welcome back to Is It Horror? I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I'm Steve. If you haven't joined us before, normally what we would do is we would take a movie that some may consider horror, some may not, and we discuss it and try and come to a conclusion on whether or not we think it is horror. But we are doing a little bit of a different format today, not extremely, but a little different. We're actually just going to be reviewing a new movie that came out, and we're going to be talking about Scream 2022. And uh, before, though, we get into that, Joe has a get-to-know-you question for everybody. So let's go and do that one. Joe? Yeah, so uh, I just was it was on my mind since we, we didn't do a midnight showing of this movie, but we did go, you know, opening weekend, and I thought it'd be fun to hear what everybody's favorite or most memorable midnight showing or opening weekend uh, movie experience was. So yeah, what was your favorite or most memorable of those? Oh, you're gonna make fun of me. It's definitely not a horror movie. I was, let's see, I was probably 19. Let's say I was 19. But anyway, I went with my BFF, uh, Erica, to the cinema and it was a midnight showing of the opening of the first lord of the rings movies which was a big freaking deal because we were we like went to the renaissance fair and did costumes and were you know total nerds and didn't have boyfriends and so we went to this midnight showing of lord of the rings and we dressed up like i applied my elf ears at 9 p.m sharp it was really a good time it was very very merry making fun was had that's awesome. <laughs> Mine was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2. Uh, and the funny thing about this was uh, at the time, I had not read the books and I had not seen all the movies. <laughs> so we went to this midnight showing and this is, was before like assigned seating and all that. So it was this big, long line and we were in line with all these dressed up people and <laughs> some really hardcore Harry Potter people. And so, you know, we just got to talking about it standing in the line there and people from in front and in back of us who were dressed up as like Professor McGonagall and other people were like, what? You haven't even read, you haven't read the books or even seen all the movies. What are you doing here? You muggle. And <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought uh, it was that was a uh, the most memorable for sure for me. It was it was fun. It, since then, I've read all the books and seen all the movies, and I really like them. But at the time, yeah, I hadn't. So for me, I'm kind of torn because uh, originally I would have said that my favorite midnight showing was probably The Dark Knight because mm-hmm. I went and it was um, at this really big theater near where we grew up and. Everybody was super hype, and people were like wearing Batman costumes, and the theater was packed. And it was like one of those moments where, like, when the Joker first comes out to that group, uh, like the group of criminals, and does like the pencil trick and like slaps the guy's head on the table uh, over the pencil, everybody was like freaking out in the theater when that happened. And it was just like the emotion in the theater there was pretty amazing. Um, so that was probably one of them. And then probably the experience of seeing Spider-Man No Way Home recently 
was one of my top top experiences also just because the theater was so emotional and everybody was like clapping and crying and it was definitely a, a big a big one My most memorable midnight showing was kind of similar to Brianna's in a different era. Um, mine was for The Hobbit. My best, my two best friends in high school and I were huge Harry, or not Harry Potter, geez, Lord of the Rings fans. So we were anticipating this movie for a while. We bought t-shirts and stuff, but we were 16 and we had to go to school the next day and it was a Thursday night. So we were, you know, contemplating how we're going to survive in school after this three-hour movie plus half an hour drive home mm -hmm. so we bought a bunch of energy drinks and five-hour energy shots and my friends did it, decided they did not want theirs so i took them all i took three <laughs> five-hour <laughs> energy shots and i mixed it in my my large coke and i had oh to leave God. the theater halfway <laughs> through the movie because i thought i had to call an ambulance so, yeah, I had to go back and see it next week with some other friends because I missed the ending. So that is a oh, uh, cautionary tale <laughs> on to control your substances. <laughs> Only use as directed. I thought that the five hours of energy stacked, though, right? So, like, if you drink five, you get 25 hours of energy. Is that not how right. that works? Exactly. Yeah. Right. That is how that works, 100%. Right. So I wish that I could say that mine was a horror movie as well, given this podcast. And the thing that's funny listening to everybody's story so far is a lot of everyone's stories seem to be more about less about what the movie was and more about just what the audience experience was and the people leading up into it. So that's always fun. So I was thinking about that. And it's the same idea with me is mine actually is also a Harry Potter movie. It was uh, the Order of the Phoenix and when I went to that one, there was a lot of people in line, a lot of people in costume. And then when we were actually waiting in the theater, there was some girl in the crowd, I don't know, high school, college, she was there with her friends. And then she started just randomly calling out to the crowds like, when I say Ron, you say Weasley, Ron, Weasley, Ron, Weasley. And I don't know why, but everyone was like, yes, we're doing this. And it must have <laughs> lasted all of like five or ten minutes. But she went through a whole yeah. bunch and just controlled the crowd and everyone was into it and i just thought it was ridiculous but it was also hilarious and i was along there with everybody else but as far as in the movie experience i gotta echo what matt said actually the most recent one since it's fresh on my mind is going to spider-man no way home without spoiling anything for that movie but just when some of those moments happened some of those characters popped up uh just everyone's cheering and you hear some people and all and it was i don't know kind of a really emotional viewing and it was kind of fun to see it on that opening night just with everybody's reactions it wasn't even opening night for me it was a middle of the afternoon but it was still packed theater extremely charged and it was a pretty cool experience those are all great that's that's fun to hear everybody's experiences about that type of thing it's kind of yeah. a it's not happening much anymore because, you know, they don't do midnight showings like they used to, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a good question. I tried to keep the spirit of that alive. I went to Scream 2022 in full ghost face costume mm -hmm. and there were like... Did you really? Can confirm. 
You don't know how much that warmed my heart. (laughs) (laughs) I was showing you off like you were my kid in a school photo. I was like, look at my friend Steve. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Well, if anyone here, uh, anyone listening, wants to see at least one of those photos, you can follow us on Twitter at Is It Horror or also on Instagram. Um, so yeah, I posted at least one of those pictures up on there. So feel free to check that out. As a, as a exterior viewer to, to that whole thing, uh, I wanted to share a funny moment about that. After the movie, when we were like walking through the parking lot, there was this older couple and like my, my wife had said that she'd heard like the wife say something like she was a little disconcerted by Steve in the ghost face mask. And the guy was like keeping a real close eye on Steve, like kept looking over his shoulder and seeing what Steve was doing. It was pretty great. She was right to be wary. (laughs) True stories. All right. Well, great. So let's get into the movie for today, which is Scream 2022, as I've already said a couple times, and I'm sure you know if you've tuned in because you saw the name of the movie on the link. Full spoiler warning for not just this movie, but for all Scream films, so fully expect that. We're going to have a full spoiler discussion, so you have been forewarned. So I guess a little bit of history on this movie. Of course, this is the fifth movie. Uh, They didn't put five in the title, but it is the fifth Scream movie. Uh, The Weinstein Company, which rightfully closed and imploded due to horrible actions. Justice being served. (laughs) Woo. So the Scream franchise was up for grabs, and it was bought by Spyglass Media, and it was released through Paramount Pictures. I couldn't tell you about the corporate relation between those two or how that all functions, but that is what's going on with that. But they acquired it and decided they wanted to do a new one. And uh, another thing with that is Wes Craven had worked on all four previous Scream movies, had directed all of those, and Kevin Williamson had written one, two, and four of those. But uh, Wes Craven, he passed away not that long ago and so wasn't able to come back for this one, unfortunately. But I feel like we'll talk about it, but definitely his presence is felt throughout the film, so I think that was pretty cool. But to give you a little bit of history about who did work on this movie, uh, it was directed by Matt Bentinelli-Olpen and Tyler Gillette probably pronounced some names wrong there. Uh, They worked on Devil's Due, which I have not seen, and also Ready or Not, which I have seen. Have any of you seen Ready or Not? Or Devil's Due? It's really good. Ready or Not is great. It has Samara weaving in it, and you can't go wrong with her, honestly, in my opinion. So there's my two cents on that part. That's one I've been wanting to see, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Oh, definitely worth making the time for. I'd rewatch it with you. Cool. Uh, The other interesting fact found in looking up just the directors on this is that uh, Matt Bentinelli-Olpen, he was also apparently in a punk band called Link 80 and was the guitarist for them from 93 to 98 and also in 2016, which I thought was kind of interesting. Their most popular song that I found on Spotify was called Verbal Kint, which if you are not initiated is... uh, from the movie the usual the usual suspects so it was kind of fun and they even have like a quote from the movie in that anyway i was really surprised so i'm gonna have to listen to more of them because big punk fan going way back if 
you didn't know that already from listening to our Green Room episode. And then as far as the writers go, we have it written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. James Vanderbilt has worked on a bunch of different things, uh, Darkness Falls, Zodiac, White House Down. He wrote Amazing Spider-Man 1 and provided the story details for 2. He also worked on Independence Day Resurgence. Uh, I guess for me, at least listening to that list of movies, I thought, wow, this is kind of a mixed bag here. (laughs) Some of these I was into, some of these I was not so into. Uh, and then Guy Busick, he's looks like he primarily worked in television before this. He worked on some episodes of Stan Against Evil, which is uh, kind of almost felt like a little bit of an answer to Ash vs. Evil Dead. Uh, he also worked on Castle Rock, and uh, he was also helped out in writing duties on Ready or Not as well. So they, they all worked together before other than James Vanderbilt. So before we get into... Uh, the big description of this, I guess, I figured I would actually get everybody's impressions, then go ahead and give a breakdown of what the film ended up being like. So what did everybody, what were your initial impressions on this? Whether you liked it, you didn't like it, how'd you feel? <sighs> well, Steve, I have very strong feelings about this. I don't know. I went into this with a really good attitude and I was excited about it. I did not watch all the, the previous films in sequential order to like lead up to it. I think I've seen everything but four. However, I remember the Lemon Square callback, so I must have seen four at some point in time. I don't know. I give this a C for reasons we can get into later. I enjoyed it. Like, there were parts of it that was really, really, really great, but the last 10 minutes of this totally lost me. Okay, fair enough. Um, So, for me, I... Uh, we so we watched the first scream movie to get ready for that episode and then we watched two three and four back to back in one day (laughs) and then watched this uh the next week which yeah anyways so we watched them all in fairly close succession i do like this movie i i wanted to like it more i wanted it to be I guess I wanted it to step up the game a little bit, and I I don't feel like it necessarily did. I did like it, and I will definitely continue on with the Scream series if they continue on with it as well. So for me, I have not seen the other Scream movies. I've only seen the first Scream. What I liked about the movie was that it did a lot of nice callbacks to the first film, And it had a lot of references and things like that. What I didn't like, I don't want to steal Mitz's thunder because her and I kind of talked a lot about it, but I felt like the film was trying a little bit too hard to be like, this is a way that we're critiquing horror or slash the other Scream movies. Look at it. Look at it. (laughs) And then, so that, that was kind of differed from the first Scream movie where it was more like it felt a lot more natural the whole we talked a little bit on the last episode about the parody or satire kind of thing where it was natural and this movie felt more like it was like look at us look at us we're doing the things that we did before see them yeah that's my opinion I kind of didn't like that part of it yeah, I won't go into too much detail on my thoughts just yet, but I, uh, it was okay for me. It was okay. 
I'll just, I'm going to leave it at that and then give more details as we go. I think that because of the nostalgia that I have surrounding the other movies, it's hard for me to immediately accept this new installment. I think that there's a lot of things to like there. There was a few things that didn't quite work for me that I'm still thinking about trying to give a fair shake and make sure that I'm not allowing my nostalgia for the other films to color my feelings on this because I will at least say this much too is uh, I don't know that I really liked Scream 4 that much after first watching it but as time has gone on I've really grown to like that one quite a bit so I don't know if maybe I need kind of like the shock of the new movie to wear off a little bit and then my impressions on it will warm up over time. I really like would like to see it again. I've only seen it once at the time of this recording, and uh, I wouldn't mind seeing it a second time, which I think all of these movies work well under a second viewing, usually because you're sitting there saying, okay, well, now I know who the killers are, and now I'm going to watch you know, a second time with that in mind and see how that everything kind of comes together. So I'd really like to see that second viewing and maybe have a little bit. That might change how I feel about it. So, two give the uh, synopsis of what happens in this movie. We start out the movie with the opening kill scene. We start out with Tara, who, let's see, Tara Carpenter, and she's getting some calls from Ghostface, and then he comes in and he attacks, and then he does not kill her. So there's the first shock of the series going into this is... uh, The opening kill is not actually an opening kill. It's an opening attack. And as we normally do with the Scream series, then we would cut to good old Sidney Prescott and see what she's up to, but we don't. So another surprise right there. We instead cut over to Tara's sister, Samantha Carpenter, who has moved away from Woodsboro. Tara was in Woodsboro, P.S. And uh, she finds out about the attack. So she and her boyfriend, Richie, They head back to Woodsboro, and of course we meet our quirky cast of characters, and uh, mostly we're meeting newcomers and kind of focusing on that, at least to start with. And so we're seeing some legacy characters. We have uh, a character that is the nephew, I want to say, of uh, Stu Mocker, and then we've got the niece and nephew of Randy Meeks with uh, Martha and, uh, not Martha, I'm sorry, Mindy. Mindy. And Chad. And uh, a bunch of other people who I'm not going to mention, except for Wes. I should mention Wes because we have Dylan Minnette in there playing Wes Hicks, which is a way to kind of give a nod to Wes Craven during the course of the film. And then from there, we start bringing in our legacy characters, Sam and her boyfriend. They go to visit with Dewey Riley, who has now uh, left the police force. He's no longer sheriff, and uh, he seems to be living kind of a rough life on his own. He's no longer with Gail Weathers, and so they ask for his help, but he's kind of feeling like maybe he shouldn't. But he immediately reaches out to Sydney, tells her, hey, there's some ghost face killings. Stay the hell away from Woodsboro. And then similarly text scale because they're not entirely on speaking terms uh stay away from woodsboro because there's ghost face killings so of course as the movie progresses both gail and sydney come to woodsboro because that's how these things work and uh ghost starts running through our new cast of characters 
we lose poor Wes so that we can have some in-universe meta for Wes moments and have a drink for Wes Craven during the course of the film, which is kind of great in my opinion. Then we also, after four movies of complete invincibility, we lose one of our legacy characters with uh, the death of Dewey. Which is reason enough to see the movie alone, just saying. Fair. <laughs> and then we get uh, our reveal at the end, which is that our killers were, in fact, Richie, Sam's boyfriend, and uh, Amber, who I haven't even mentioned by name yet, but uh, Amber, who is the best friend of Tara or girlfriend? I wasn't clear on that. Anybody else chime in on that? I felt like there was going to be a relationship or there was a previous relationship and they decided to be friends about it. Okay, yeah, because it seemed like it was maybe more than friends thing, but I couldn't really quite pin it. Because yeah. honestly, they didn't have a lot of screen time together. No, they didn't. I I was shocked that those were the killers who were revealed because I didn't feel like there was enough of a buildup for Amber. And seriously, like, great value Pacey from Dawson's Creek? Come on. Come on. <laughs> I I gotta say, though, I do like Jack Quaid. Well, all right, I'm going to finish up the summary. Oh, we'll he's delightful. <laughs> I'm just saying, choices. It was not the actor's fault. He was lovely. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, so anyway, at that point, we've got our surviving characters, which are Tara and Sam, and it all wraps up at the old Stu Mocker house, which is now apparently lived in by Amber and her family. So our killers are Amber and Richie, and they are obsessed fans who feel like the movie series was excellent for the first movie and sucked for the rest. And they wanted to provide new material for Hollywood writers to make a better film afterward. And so that is their whole motivation for doing it. And so they're trying to construct this requel by bringing in a new cast of characters, by bringing in old characters, and uh, trying to make it enticing enough that uh, Hollywood will create a finally, finally a good Stab sequel, and Stab being the in-universe movie series based on the Woodsboro murders, as well as the Windsor College murders. So both killers get killed. Tara and Sam both survive, as well as Gail and... Sydney, of course, surviving, and then uh, both of the Meeks siblings, both Mindy and Chad, both survive too. Uh, despite Chad, I was sure was dead, but anyway, they all survive, right? and then uh, the movie ends. So there is the Scream 2022 synopsis. So yeah, let's get into this. <sighs> we need rewrites. We need rewrites immediately. This was a good first draft, y'all, but. <sighs> Just, we need to let the adults take over. <laughs> well, I'll just first touch on that whole situation with, like, where you think, is it Chad, the one that you think is dead at the end? Is that what his name is? Yeah, Chad. I just feel like that end scene where, like, every he's, like, he had a, a bunch of stab wounds in him, and he's just sitting on a ventilator waving from the back of an emergent, uh, from the truck, and, like... Uh, Gail Weathers had took a bullet to the stomach and she's just sitting there mm -hmm. like wrapped in a blanket and like <laughs> everybody like it just felt like the urgency in all these people's wounds was not there because it's like if you take a bullet to the stomach like 
that's serious. Like, you're going to die if you're not treated unless it, you're very, very lucky. <laughs> well, she does knowing Pilates. that you have it's seen... Fine. It's true. Abs of steel there. Um, but knowing that you have seen just the first movie and this movie, this is not the first time Gail has been shot in the stomach. <laughs> so the, in that one, they uh, in two, they said it was a glance off the ribs. So who knows? <laughs> um, I feel like it's a staple of Scream movies that like there are some like terrible wounds stab wounds gunshot wounds and all that and they're hugely detrimental right up until it's not convenient to the plot anymore yeah that could yeah. be it i was also going to suggest that perhaps gail weathers has just built up a tolerance to gunshot wounds by taking smaller calibers and then going up from there like maybe that's how she did it <laughs> Working her way up, she can take a full magnum blast to the face without any issue now. Yeah, she just built the immunity. Yeah, it's like keto. You just got to get used to it. Right. So how did we feel about... I guess let's let's get into the, the biggest thing, I guess, first. How did everyone feel about the reveal of the killers and the killers' motivations for doing what they did? Did you see who it was coming? Did you feel like the... Motive was good, it was bad. What does everyone think on that? I think I know what they tried to do with that because I feel like they were <clears throat> maybe not so subtly throughout the whole movie driving home the fact that it always goes back to the original. Or if we're going back to the original, there's going to, of course, be two killers. We know that already. It's going to be in the circle, the friend's circle, like is discussed. But having the love interest do it and having Dewey actually call that out um, was a little bit too obvious. I was hoping, and let's be honest. Let's no, Steve. Let's be real here. The biggest question is why the hell wasn't Matthew Lillard, Lillard in this movie? That's that's the question on all our minds. Just saying. Yeah, I mean, his house was in it. Apparently, his nephew was in it. Really, just to yeah. get killed off, which was disappointing. But right. I so disappointing. Was kind of hoping he'd show back up. Yeah. I was honestly thinking that if we're going to go for the gold and we're going to take this fifth installment of a series that, you know, maybe maybe some horror fans, fans would be like, okay, this has really played out. They're grasping in straws. Like, go for the gold. I thought we were going to see Strumacher in league with Amber somehow that he had, like, been, I don't know, sent to some sort of a mental facility all these years because there was a legal loophole because he was a minor at the time of the, of the murders. I just thought it would have been fantastic for Sydney to take him out again. I think it would have been interesting to see him come back. And I think that maybe it's still possible because, all right, let's be real. Spyglass didn't buy this franchise to make a single movie and then disappear into the night, never making another one. This is clearly to start off a new franchise and at least in my opinion, to pass a torch, right? So we're going to sit there and say, okay, we're going to bring in the legacy characters to get you sold on doing another movie. We're going to get you invested in the new characters. Then when Scream 6 or Scream 2 or whatever the hell they're going to call it at this point, Scream again. Anyway, whenever this new installment comes out, then they can step back the legacy characters that are still alive even further or maybe not even have them in it at all. And hopefully you have become invested enough in the Carpenter sisters and the surviving Meeks Martin kids to be able to 
say to yourself, I don't even care that the legacy characters aren't here. Yeah. And maybe when that happens, maybe they bring Stu back then. It might seem weird to bring him back and not bring Sydney back in the same movie. I'd be pretty disappointed, actually. Right. I feel like that has to be the ultimate showdown. But I agree that I agree that this was extremely well cast. I feel that um, it was a good mix of legacy and new faces and all of, you know, the younger crew did bang up jobs with each with each of their characters for what they were given by the writers. It was fun to watch. I just last 10 minutes just freaking killed me, killed me. Had everybody else come away with the, the killers and the motivations. I kind of agree that it was made too obvious, but not from the beginning. I mean, I know that the two killers were immediately pointed out, but then you you sort of lost that as the story went on. Um, but I also feel like there weren't enough people alive at the end for it to be anyone other than those two people. Because by the time they got to the house, there were so few people left alive in the main circle that it's narrowed down for you. And I thought that kind of took away some of the surprise. I feel the way that they revealed the killers in this movie, it was kind of like they didn't really expect you to be surprised or excited about the reveal of Amber. So they're kind of like, ah, this one's first. It's Amber. And then... Then they were like, okay, you really wanted to find out if Richie was a killer or not. And he is! There's the big surprise killer reveal. So it was kind of weird that they kind of did the two-step thing. It's not like they haven't done it in previous installments with two, for instance, being one. I mean, they kind of do it as well in... uh, That's the one that really takes a little bit more time. But yeah, it, it felt like they weren't as interested in revealing Amber because they knew as a movie they didn't spend as much time with her and they spent a lot more time with Richie and figured you'd like Richie a lot better, so that was the bigger reveal of the two, so they waited on that one. Did anybody else get that impression? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, I I told Myth, like, when they initially, when, you know, Dewey points him out, I was like, yeah, he pro- I think he probably is the killer. But then, And then they spend the entire movie trying to like really hone in on the fact that he's not the killer like he just got excited about these stab movies and he's watching them on Netflix and he's you know so it's like they do a little bit of like oh well you you were missing in that one conveniently you were conveniently out of the room for this one instance but then the rest of the movie just feels like they're trying to to stop you from looking at him and so it kind of just becomes obvious that it is him, to me, anyway. And I didn't even really think about Amber that much. Yeah, I wouldn't say I did. I didn't feel like it was necessarily a big surprise. And it was kind of entertaining, I guess, thinking back on it with him watching Stab and then watching YouTube video on Stab 8 later and then finding, oh, he's not getting set up. It's just his he's obsessed with these movies so it kind of you're like all right that makes sense because i think that's one of the things that's a little bit difficult sometimes in this kind of movie where you show one of your suspects alone and then when they're alone they should be doing something involved with that like okay i better set up the killings and things like that so i think it's a little bit more difficult to show them by themselves because you think about the first screen movie you never saw Stu or billy by themselves in any scene or even just alone together because as soon as that happened, right, 
you would know the answer, but I think that they at least had a good job with Richie with like, okay, we gave him something to do and it kind of makes sense in character if you haven't figured out he's the killer yet. So you can kind of be like, okay, I guess he's trying to figure these things out. I think I even saw that there was a scene in the first movie that they had to cut that was Billy and Stu alone, but it gave too much away just by how they acted. So they ended up cutting it from the movie. Yeah, so it's almost like that's the thing you want to pay attention for in these movies is which character has a scene alone and what is that scene like? Or which two characters never have a scene alone? But then, of course, they made Amber and Richie seem antagonistic towards each other from their very first meeting. So I guess that was their way of getting around that. So what about the whole uh, putting toxic fandom on trial with this film? So they're talking about it by saying that Ryan Johnson, he directed the 8th Stab movie. And of course, he directed the 8th Star Wars movie with Last Jedi that everyone had such a visceral reaction to. And then, of course, you've got the killer's motivation talking about that too, that they really love this series, that they really care about it. And uh, even Amber making the plea that she was radicalized by Reddit about these movies. I guess, what did you guys think about all of that? Um, The last Jedi was bad. Sorry. So just wanted to reiterate that. (laughs) (laughs) But is it ghost face in a chrome mask using a flamethrower bad? (laughs) <laughs> that's just fun that is no, good old see, fashion fun that's the that's the movie i wanted to see personally i thought that was pretty cool it kind of made me want to see stab eight <laughs> so i don't know what they were talking about i thought it was a funny scene where like they have like a couple guys doing a podcast well i think it's actually a youtube video critiquing uh stab eight and here we are sitting here doing a podcast on scream five Anyways, I thought that was kind of funny. So if anybody's thinking about being radicalized by our podcast, please just stop. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We're not here to radicalize anyone. Maybe gnarly eyes, cowabungas, anything involving the Ninja Turtles, really. Exactly. (laughs) I'm on board with that. But I I do think it's, um, it's kind of funny to hear that because... You've seen it so much over the last few years where it's like some of these people on Twitter, the takes that they have on movies when they come out, like you had people, there's probably someone out there on Reddit or Twitter who would have resorted to homicide over hearing that like Chris Pratt was going to voice Mario in the movie or something like that. You know what I mean? Like some of these people are just out of this world like crazy about about movies um so yeah it was kind of funny to to see that like some people would like dress up like Ghostface to go see scream 2022 like god i know some of those people really they are so crazy they scare the old people in the parking lot it's rough it is rough (laughs) like get your act together we are the old people in the parking lot what are you talking about I was talking about the slightly older people in the parking lot that apparently I scared. (laughs) (laughs) I can't confirm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that is kind of sad to see, too, is, you know, you can really like something, you can really dislike something, but you're taking it too far if you're ever making anyone else feel like they should feel bad for whatever their opinion is on the subject, or especially if you're getting to the point of threatening violence towards anyone for these. Obviously, they're taking it to the extreme in this movie and having them actually go out and kill people, but... 
yeah, I, I don't know. Can't we all just enjoy the things we enjoy without resorting to violence and being rude to each other about it? Yeah, along those lines, sometimes something I sometimes think about is so like Christian Bale's Batman, I guess, is kind of my Batman. Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, those are my Batman movies. That's kind of how I have to think about it a little bit. Like the there's other Batman movies out there. There's other things that have come since then that are a different, you know, they're a different beast. And like I kind of just have to keep in mind that like those thing those things existing don't somehow destroy what came before. And it's the same thing with Star Wars, you know, four, five, and six are my Star Wars. Everything that's come since then, it's not like it's necessarily bad or terrible. Um, I don't personally care for them, but it doesn't destroy what came before. And I think it's hard to, hard to think of that sometimes. In my head, the Alien series ends after the second movie. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, for me, I'm content to just have those be what I consider, what are mine, I guess, in my head. And I don't have to let the other things ruin it for me. But I don't know. I guess that's what ends up working for me and trying to help me not take some of the other stuff so seriously. So I guess one of the other things we want to talk about, too, is uh, how do we feel about, at least there's been some talk about how the original characters were used in this movie and how they were dealt with. Some people seem happy about that, some not so happy. How did you guys feel about the original characters, the returning characters, and how they were used in this film? I've got a few things to say about Dewey's death, but we can get into that in a minute. (laughs) Oh, I have a lot to say about that. I was fuming. Okay, maybe we just get into it then. Um, (laughs) Because, all right, my things with it is like, Dewey is smarter than this. Like he wouldn't, I mean, and the other thing, like Dewey knows that guns are a ranged weapon. Why does he have to walk right over to the person? And then like the other thing that bugged me is like, it was a very dramatic, very well shot scene, but the whole like, I'm going to reload my gun while I walk down the hall and leave myself vulnerable through this whole moment is, it just drives me nuts. And then like, you know, luckily he does get his gun reloaded by the time he gets to Ghostface, but then just, I don't know, then just is taken out. Like, it, I don't know. It bugged me. It very much bugged me too. I hate, I hate the whole way that that scene went down. It just doesn't seem like any human thought process would happen that way. I mean, immediately when your killer is down and everybody is safe, why would you not? unmask them right there i don't that's my first question that's some uh, the first thing i don't find realistic about that second thing i don't find realistic is that he stays alone upstairs with the killer and that he is that easily overtaken especially because now we know that that was amber because you know what's his face is already downstairs with the other girls so that's amber and yeah he got killed by Amber. That's disappointing. And just, you know, I know a lot of, it's kind of a common trope in horror movies that they're making dumb decisions that will lead to their death, but it is just, it's getting old to me. I don't think that that works anymore. 
yeah, this movie and that character should have been smarter than that. To me, it was like if you went into Halloween 2018 and you found Laurie Strode and she was living in like a beach house that was all windows and never had any gun training. And like that's kind of how all the legacy characters felt like all the legacy characters really put themselves in dumb positions considering what they've been through. So not just Dewey. Dewey was just the one who happened to die, but yeah, they all it all felt like they were very underprepared, like they'd never experienced the things that they'd experienced before now. Yeah. I will agree with what everybody just said, but from a blood standpoint alone, Dewey's death scene was the best scene of the whole movie. It made me wince. It made me have feelers. Of course it had to be Dewey, because Dewey's the only character, uh, legacy character besides Sydney, who we've remained attached to through for most of the franchise. If they had knifed Kale immediately, we'd be like, ugh, that vapid bitch, brr, you know. So I think it makes sense to kill Dewey. I agree that his character was done a little dirty because, yes, he's way smarter than that. But that was a great freaking scene. That was, that was golden. That's kind of my weird being torn on this scene, too, as I agree. It's it's a ranged weapon. There's one person with the gun. There's three other people. There's a single killer that's down for the count, or at least should be for a moment. And yeah, I don't know why he wouldn't reload at a distance and then fire at a distance. But, uh, but yes, as far as like the kill goes... I do like the way the scene feels. It's just that frustration of why would you make this choice? I, I agree with what you were saying, Brianna. Like it, it had to be Dewey. Like he's the one you care about. Like it, that's what mattered the most. And that's what made you feel something about it. And it was, it was shot very well, but it was just, it was frustrating. Like this movie should have been smarter. He should have been smarter. Yeah. That begs the question, like how do you get a, a smart movie with a smart character into a situation where he gets killed and it feels believable. And I can understand that that's a difficult thing to, to get to that character to that point, but the payoff wasn't worth the lead up or I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but you know, no, I, I agree. I the know. payoff didn't match the lead up. I was expecting a lot more. And with my, my gripe with Dewey's death scene was finding out, you know, that Amber was the one who killed him. Come on, man. That's a matter of weight ratio. I just, I can't. I can't. Yes. She was very petite. Yeah. Like a lot. <laughs> also, she just took three slugs to the chest. I know she was wearing a right. bulletproof vest, but come on. That'll knock the wind out of you when you weigh 85 pounds. I think yes. one of the things... It might have been good to do in that scene, and of course there's a million different ways you could have done it differently, so it probably isn't worth saying, but that having been said, I'm about to say it. We all go into all of these movies expecting there to be to be two killers, and with the exception of three, there has been two killers. So let's let the cat out of the bag early, and if we want to suddenly distract Dewey and then have him lose then maybe you have that happen by having the second killer pop up. Now, obviously, knowing that we know now who the killers are, we couldn't have done that because Richie's in the elevator going down towards the first floor. But 
if they wanted to rearrange that slightly and then have the surprise be, hey, it's the second killer already stabbing you in the back, then the first killer gets up and stabs in the front, then we're all sitting there like, okay, that's a surprise. I wasn't expecting them to go ahead and tell us that this early, but that's just yeah. one other way that they could have maybe made mm-hmm. that more believable. I was just going to say, when you when you get this far into the franchise, um, if if the if the trope that we're running with here is the fact that these teenagers are still outsmarting local law enforcement after they've been dealing with this for so long, I have a hard time believing that the characters as they were presented were smart enough to pull that off. I just, it felt like womp womp. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's a good transition here to uh, what do we feel about the new characters? I mean, of course, if you have anything to say about how Sydney and Gail were portrayed too, but how do we feel about the new cast of characters? It was a really good, really, really good cast. I would go see the next movie just based on the casting alone, even if the legacy characters weren't in it. Yeah, I really liked uh, Mindy and Chad Meeks. I guess Mindy more than Chad, but uh, Mindy I was a badass. Let's be real I, here. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I I really like her character and just like her kind of following in her uncle's footsteps about being way into horror movies and all that stuff. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see where Sam and Tara go to. Yeah, I thought they were, it was a cool cast. Um, something I really thought was cool, and I didn't like all the callbacks in the movie, but one of the callbacks I did like is that the first time you see the new cast of high schoolers, it pans over them like an overhead shot with some rock music playing. I thought that was a really cute callback. And they're all sitting on picnic tables. That was cool. I like that. Yeah, I'd have to do some research, but I think a lot of that dialogue is almost the same as the first Scream movie, too. There's definitely some echoes there. I'd, I'd have to see it again to give you some specifics on it. But yeah, definitely the setting and the way it was shot and things like that are certainly reminiscent of the first film. And then I liked, I think the group that I went and saw this, when we were talking about this after we came out of it. And uh, I almost liked Tara a little bit better than Samantha. I'd like Samantha too, but I had a little bit, I guess, of a hard time with the whole, uh, ghost skeet ulrich (laughs) popping up and uh, you know billy loomis you know telling her she's not good enough and then telling her to the knife and obviously it's supposed to be reflective of how she's feeling about these things and her finally accepting her past and you know being able to move forward but it's a little bit weird in a way seeing everything that he started off to see billy loomis almost in that random positive light at the end when he's like get the knife and i don't know i i'm still trying to decide how i feel about that and it also yeah. I was just going to say, it just echoes a little bit, too, of the horrible, in my opinion, plotline of Scream 3 with uh, the ghost mom popping up and the killer somehow getting it right in his head that she's seeing her ghost mom, which I just, oh, I hate it so much. Anyway, but, uh, and then you get a little echo of that, too, with Richie bringing up the fact that, oh, you're seeing your ghost dad. And it was kind of thinking to myself... Had they talked about that? Did I miss the part where they talked about that? Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that you're just supposed to assume that. that they... I thought maybe they just chatted because they're going out. I don't know. That yeah, was the impression I got. That's the assumption I made. Yeah. 
But I, I guess that's the whole thing. The whole like, oh, my dad's Billy Billy Loomis thing was a little weird to me. Well, first off, I guess just to answer to or just to say something about the ghost thing, I did think that was weird. But I did kind of really like the scene uh, where she like goes off the rails a little bit and gets really stabby. And she's just mm -hmm. like, I don't know, tapping into a little bit of primal rage there. Anyways, she's she's hardcore, <laughs> I guess. Um but uh let's see um oh shoot my train of thought it's gone i'll get back to this well just i guess a quick comment on that it was a little bit reminiscent for me of uh your next because uh, i really like the final girl character in that is great i don't know if everyone here yeah. has seen your next but it is a great film in my opinion Oh, that's what I was going to say. Okay. So um, uh, my wife kind of pointed this out. It was like the whole we found out your dad's Billy Loomis thing like had to come from Amber. And it's just sort of a throwaway line of like, oh, we live in a small town and people talk. But then it's like, so why wouldn't Tara know that too? Like it doesn't it didn't track for me very well that like Amber somehow knew who Tara's dad, but Tara didn't. And then. I, I don't know. And then like the whole like, oh, I read Sam read the diaries and that's how she found out. And then she told, you know, her mom and her dad at that point, And that's why her dad left. And like, I feel like any of the gossip that would have been going on would have happened long before that, like right after the instances of uh, of Scream 1, like you know, that's when the rumor mill would have been going like and to have it be like, oh, no, it was this random teenager who found out later it for being amber like amber finding out randomly later and then using this to like set up this intricate plot it felt a little weird to me and that's why it would have made more sense to just have my man Stu mocker hang out and he's the one who tells amber all this stuff and they're in league together and it would make dewey's death better so i'm just saying hello matthew lillard get on board please save us all <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he wants to do it. It's just a matter of somebody giving him the phone. In Matthew, we trust. And then he can make a sequel to 13 Ghosts. Oh, oh, wow. Yes, please. Can, actually, can we do that first? I don't know. That's a tough decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we're doing a sequel to Hackers, too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've written my five season treatment, so. Woohoo! <laughs> but uh, how did everyone feel about how Ghostface came off in this film? So not not the individual revealed killers when we finally find that out, but how did Ghostface, when he's on the phone, when he's in person, sort of them as a character on their own, how did that go for everybody? Ghostface still got it for me. Zero complaints. His voice just does it for me. Ten stars. I felt I like no he was particularly vicious. No complaints on your side, Mitz? Nope. Why do you think he was particularly vicious? I felt like um, a lot of the previous movies, right, you... I mean, Dewey got stabbed once in the back in the first movie, and most deaths were, like, a little bit of a slice and dice. It's not to say that there weren't more vicious ones, but it's like it lingered on it, too. So you get a lot more stabbing and cutting and, like, the knife through the throat for Wes, particularly uh, breaking mm -hmm. Tara's leg and just 
yeah, when he's on screen and he's actually killing someone, he's really going for it, as opposed to some of the other incarnations where I felt like they dialed it back, especially where you get entries like 3 where they were almost going for a PG-13 rating on it. I agree. I think that the killings were... Um, I mean, obviously it's still a regular slasher film, and and it, they were more precise. I don't know. They made me... Sc- squirm a little bit more like the knife through the cheek was great um dewey and when uh when sam just goes freaking ape shit on that guy at the end like that was wonderful yeah i think uh they did what they were setting out to do in that every time ghost faces on screen or over the phone it feels almost exactly like the same ghost face in the first movie just maybe with a little bit more brutality, a little bit more blood. I think they can get away with a little bit more in 2022 than they could in 1996, probably. So, But yeah, it felt like they didn't really miss a beat on Ghostface. The one thing that I was thinking about, I feel like Ghostface is a separate entity from the killers. Uh, Absolutely. And- yeah, in, in all the movies. Uh, and like that comes back to this whole like Dewey got killed by Amber and that feels implausible. And I think four, in my opinion, is the worst offender when you find out the killers are Charlie and uh, Jill. They're both these small in stature people. And like it's hard to look back at that film and like and then be like, okay, yeah, one of these two overpowered two cops with no difficulty. Like it, it's it's hard to it's hard to visualize that. But yeah, anyways, I guess back more to the point of the question, like Ghostface being a separate separate entity and all. I feel like yeah, he was very good in this one. I liked I liked all the things that Ghostface did. Very true to the original. Also, I did jump, like, literally jump several times in the theater watching this, which for me is pretty good. Yeah, I, overall, I like the portrayal, and I think that it was kind of interesting doing things a little bit different with um, even the opening kill sequence, right? Because when he first calls, I think you're getting more of what Roger Jackson's voice actually sounds like before he starts putting on the ghost face character. And then it starts getting more menacing from there. And that sequence, it can't last very long, but the menace kind of ramps up and it's, I don't know, he just, he does a very good job with it. And of course he's doing the same thing that he's always been doing with it. But yeah, I, I just really enjoyed that part of it. And uh, just hearing that voice always gets me excited watching these movies. And I thought visually Ghostface looked really good in this. I think, I mean, there's not a whole lot of variation to the costume from movie to movie, or at least not, it's hard to notice the variation, I guess we'll say. I'm sure there's lots of little technical details that are different, but visually he was looking good. And, uh, you know, it was fun to watch him on screen. Yeah, he's still scary. Like, I'm still menaced. I'm very menaced. What about the overall storyline? Not to, I guess, belabor the point or get too long on it, and I'm sure we've talked about it a little bit, but how did the overall story feel for you guys? Kind of what I was saying earlier, and it's funny because the film sort of makes fun of this sort of thing with the requels and and all the callbacks and fan service, but 
Um, I do feel like the story in this was a little bit kind of overshadowed by how much fan service and how much it was trying to call back to the original one and how very in your face it was about doing that. Like mimicking, in so much that they were mimicking a lot of the scenes from the first movie and then just making it like a little bit different. Like here's the same scene, but nobody dies in it this time. Or like, I don't know. I feel like they could have maybe done a little bit less of that and made the story put a little bit more into the story and made it its own film rather than calling back to the original so much. They were, I think they were maybe trying to do that a little bit with Sam being Billy Loomis's daughter and trying to give her a little bit of uh, like a character development and an arc. And she has, you know, her father is, she's hallucinating her father. So that's kind of like where they want you to focus on, story-wise, like, this is the interesting part of the story that's new. Um, but I kind of just felt like we didn't get enough of that. It was just so much callbacks. Yeah, and actually, this is, I guess I can talk about this now. Um, my main critique of this movie was all of the callbacks, but not necessarily necessarily the callbacks themselves, but the way that they were handled. So the original Scream movie was meta in and of itself. It was a critique on horror movies at the time, which is why we got so many references in the original Scream with like the little Elm Street sign, which was also in the new movie, which I thought was neat. Um, the last name Loomis, all of the conversations about cult classic horror movies, if you, or just classic horror movies, I should say. That's kind of what made the original Scream movie really cute and interesting. I don't know if cute's the right word. Charming is probably a better word. Um, because it was so meta, but it worked. And it especially worked if you were already a horror fan saying that. Because you kind of had to know a little bit about horror to get some of those jokes and references in the original Scream. But in this movie... And Scream 2022, they just tell you when they're about to make a reference, basically. And that kind of spoils the fun of it. So, and it's right from the beginning, too, when Ghostface is on the phone and he says, in the original Stab movie, Ghostface asks her to play a game. Do you want to play a game? And it's kind of like that every time. They kind of, you know, explain it to the audience as if they're trying to you know, fill them in if they haven't seen the original Scream. And I think that because the original movie was already so meta, you can't make the remake meta because it's already been done. So it doesn't have the same flavor, in my opinion. One thing I thought was interesting, or I, I don't know, it's one of those things like Scream is, I think, always been a bit self-aware of what it is and what it's doing. But it, it, I feel like they, you know, to the point where they even make fun of themselves. And I feel like there was at least a few moments in this movie where they're doing that. And like one was like when Sydney like kicks Ghostface in the face and is like, you're, you know, you're probably the most derivative killer so far. And like, I feel like that was a like a jab at themselves being like, yeah, we recognize that there's a lot of stuff that we've already done here and that we're we are copying the first one a lot. Um, 
But yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting. I feel like this movie had a lot of heavy lifting to do. And we'll see if it pays off with a potential part six or however they want to end up phrasing it. But I think that the best thing for the franchise, in my opinion, and I know maybe a lot of Scream fans would disagree with me, is to move past Sidney Prescott, move past Gail Weathers, and completely hand the torch over to the new cast. I think that they would be better served to do the next installment and just focus on the new characters and not even bring back any of the legacy characters. Because I think you don't, you have bad options with Sidney Prescott at this point, because option one, you bring her back and you kill her. And then everyone's pissed off because you killed her. And no one wants to see Sidney Prescott go through everything she's gone through and then to die at the hands of whatever kill her, whatever killer ends up getting her. And then that killer is going to be behind the eight ball because you're going to be sitting there. No matter how good that character was, you're going to hate that actor, that person for doing it, and then run into the whole toxic fandom thing that they're even talking about. So that's option one, right? Kill her and it gets rough. Option two, which I think is what they've been doing really, is basically have her be invincible throughout these films. She pops up, she does her thing, she takes some injuries, and then she goes home fine with another story to tell. And that's not really that fun either because then you're sitting there saying, like, there's no tension when she's on screen. Maybe she's going to get killed by these people, but you don't really believe it. So they're better off, in my opinion, just leaving her off the table, giving her her happy ending. We know that apparently from her comments that she married Detective Mark Kincaid from the previous film, then they've got a couple kids and she's got her happily ever after. So let's let her do that and have her go her way and then focus on the new cast. But now you're sitting here with this movie, right, where they've got to make that happen. They've got to say, okay, here are the legacy characters. We're bringing them in so you'll all come back and see this. But here are the new characters. We left a whole bunch of them alive so that they can carry the franchise on. And now we've got to do that for this movie. We've got to introduce new killers. We've got to introduce new characters. We've got to give the old characters a send-off. And now that this movie's over and faithfully nodded back as much as possible to the original films. Now we can move on to the next installment, which can actually be its own thing with just the new characters, give them more depth and maybe really do something new. So I don't know. That's what I was thinking is I think that this movie had a lot that it had to get through. And I think that ultimately my feeling that I'm starting to kind of coalesce for it is that I think that it did a good job with everything that it had to get through. And it did set up, it left us in a spot where I do care about what happens to the new characters they brought in, which is probably the best thing that they could hope for, really, when it's all said and done. If if this does become, you know, a continuing trilogy or, or series, something I would like to see, and you can tell me if this is too cliche, but I would like to see more development of Samantha and her connection with her dad. And because at the end of the movie, we see how vicious she can be. We see kind of her dad come out just then when she's just tearing Richie apart. So I would I would really find it interesting if, if she kind of goes down a dark path with that. And then it ends up having to be Samantha versus her sister as the final girl. That might be too cliche, though. But I think that would be a really interesting path. I think it'd be cool if she is tempted by the dark side 
But then eventually she has to fight Emperor Palpatine and, you know, be great. Yeah. <laughs> she's exactly. basically Rey. Yeah. Rey, also a she's great the, path. She's the Rey of the Scream series. <laughs> well, the thing... Okay, if this is being referenced to other horror movies, then you get the same idea, too. For minor spoilers here, I guess, for people that haven't seen the Friday the 13th series or the back half of the Halloween series or the original run, anyway, is you do get that whole segment in Halloween's, like, 4 and 5 with, is Jamie Lloyd going to be able to overcome her dark side from being related to Michael Myers? You get this with Tommy Jarvis in Friday the 13th's part four and five with the idea of like okay he's seen a lot of this stuff a lot of hell going on here is he influenced by it is he giving into a dark side with it but then the problem is that each of those sequels when they bring the character back they don't really make good on it not really i mean five kind of delves into tommy jarvis and maybe is trying to set him up as a suspect but you never really believe it and so i guess that would be the interesting thing to do is for them to look at classic slasher movies, hinting that there's this dark element, but then never delivering on exploring it. So I think that would be interesting to see Samantha Carpenter's character in the next film actually delving into it. So I do think that would be a good idea, and I do kind of hope that they go there with it. I have a couple random things about Scream movies that are like, I guess I'd like to hear if you guys have any others to add to it or if you have any thoughts about them, but like they're kind of scream staples for me or that, that I guess things that kind of bug me about scream movies, I should say there's seems to often be like a randomly like inexplicable, inexplicably empty hospital in which the, the killer can come and attack somebody in. And then you always have like, particularly inept cops from just the like patrolmen or like you even up to like detectives and things like that and you get like the detectives in two where they're like these are our two best detectives and they both totally get owned and then uh there's also like you get a lot of like smart characters doing dumb things which is frustrating and then like extremely lucky killers, like a lot of stuff that's like just barely on that like cusp of like suspension of disbelief. Like I suppose that could work out for them, uh, but it's like it's really convenient. Anyways, any thoughts on those or anything, any other scream staples that you guys have? Yeah, I do kind of. It's frustrating, the lucky killer thing. I mean, we've talked about this a lot kind of off podcast joe and i have just about sometimes i'd like to see at least for me anyway sometimes i'd like to see what the killer is doing off screen like how many kills did they try to attempt and then somebody else walked in the room and then you're just like ah damn it and they're like backing off and like you know hiding back in the closet again like i almost kind of want to see some of those moments where they're like shoot i almost had that one now i'm gonna have to improvise more did these kills actually work out the way they wanted or are they just getting super lucky or are they actually being screwed over most of the time one oh this is kind of so the when uh, Sam gets attacked in the hospital, like down on the like main floor in in the like break room, you know, Ghostface calls and then is like, you know, she's like, "Come and get me!" And Ghostface is like, "Yeah, she, yeah," or I don't remember exactly the lines, but you know, pops out from behind the door and is like attacking. They're throwing furniture around and all that stuff's happening. Then it turns out like there's a cop 
literally on the other side of the door and the whole nurse's station and like you're telling me none of them heard that anyways it's just that another one of those i guess kind of to tie into that is like how many times is like ghostface just like sort of lurking in the background waiting for the right moment and yeah it just doesn't work out or something like that are they uh, this is something me and steve have talked about is like are they really good at playing or are they as it turns out just really good at improvising and I guess maybe you get a little bit of that in Scream 1, the original one, right? Because you've got uh, the scene where Sydney and Tatum are talking on Tatum's porch, and then you get them buying snacks in the store, and you've got Ghostface running around in the background of both of those sequences. So maybe he was sitting there like, I'll tell you what, if no car drives by for 10 minutes, I'll go and I'll attack him on the porch. Or maybe if the guy behind the counter takes his 15 minute break, I'll go ahead and attack him here in the cold drink aisle. And like, it just doesn't work out. So I don't know if maybe that's what they were getting at with those scenes. Yeah, it would be interesting to see like an after action report between the two killers. (laughs) Next Scream movie can be from Stu's point of view. Now that would be interesting. I support that. Any other closing thoughts? I liked it. I wanted to like it more. They did okay. Me too. I really wanted to like it more. What's everybody's out of five rating for this? I was going to give it a 2.75. But because Dewey and Gail's story was awesome and I appreciated it, I'm going to give it a three. That Yeah, I, I guess that's what I was going to say. Well, I was not that exact thing, but I was going to give it three three out of five lucky killers. Uh, yeah, I'll say three out of five also. And since you said it, uh, quick point out that Dewey and Gail's scene there where they meet uh, in Woodsboro for the first time there is probably the best acting in the entire movie. Right? Can we just, like, I got some major feels because, okay, everybody knows that those two actors were at one point married, and you know that they were, like, feeling some stuff. Oh, magic. Pure magic. That was a really great scene. I really like that, too. It was more character depth than you normally see from that, more heavy lifting emotionally than they normally have in their sequences when they get back together, because they're always getting back together. But, yeah, that was a good scene. I also thought it was precious that he kept up watching the news. Yeah. He could see her. And then what do you give that out of five minutes? I give that a two. Ooh, she's cold. (laughs) I think, um, I don't know, I'll have to see it again and kind of let some of the nostalgia of the previous ones wear off, but I guess I'm sitting at probably about a three as well right now. So I guess as a group, that puts us at uh, 2.8 killers out of 5. All right. Any other final thoughts before we uh, close this one out? Bring back Stu. Indeed. Let's bring back Stu. Hashtag bring back Stu. We'll just have to send a message to Matthew Lillard and tell him, hey, I don't know what it takes. Figure it out, man. DM him this podcast. (laughs) And then he can read your treatment. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll tell him about the Hackers TV show. <laughs> and you have to let me meet him so I can fangirl. Oh, you're going to write the thing with me. Oh, that's right. I forgot he was co-writer. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us for our first review episode. Um, let us know what you thought about Scream. You can follow us on Twitter or you can follow us on Instagram. 
But uh, yeah, keep following us on Spotify. And thanks for joining us. I've been Steve. I've been Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I'm Mitz. Bye. Bye. Join us in two weeks where we'll be talking about Coraline. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us at Is It Horror on Twitter, on Instagram at Is It Horror Pod, or you can email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is It